Good morning, Broadway. For those of you who don't know us, um, I'm Carson, and this is my wife, Kirsten. We're, we come from the boat stock. <laughs> um, I've, I've been a member here for my whole life, and Kirsten has been here since we got married about nine years ago. Over the past five years, Kirsten um, has been up here a time or two, sharing about our journey with the church. A lot of people have been asking about how we were doing, where are we up to, but what are we up to now? We wanted to take this time once again to invite you into our story and ask you to pray with us and for us. A quick backstory for those of you who don't know. But Kirsten and I have been struggling with infertility for the past five years. We've tried different methods um, and procedures, including IVF, and have come away unsuccessful. These procedures have taken a great toll um, on Kirsten's physical and mental health and, um, and my emotional health. There have been much loss and grief and struggling to know what it looks like for us to continue to move towards having a family. About two years ago, Kirsten shared with the church what this experience has been like for her. It felt vulnerable and risky to step out and put her story out there not knowing how people would respond. Church, we want to say thank you. We felt so deeply cared for. Uh, just to give a few examples, care groups have dropped off, um, gift baskets for us, saying they've been thinking about us, we've received emails, cards that have been timely, where people saying they've been praying for us. Some people have even been pulled to commit to pray for us um, in an intentional way for a season. Pastoral staff and the lead team have taken time to hold our story and pray with us. We've, we've had a carer who's walked um, intimately and deeply with us. There are people even been in this church who've quietly committed to regularly fasting for us. We've had friends who've created space for us to cry and share. It's the power of the church, so thank you. Um, we have felt loved and supported um, with this community in this incredible, difficult journey. It is with this that we want to share with you what's coming next for us. After much prayer and time to process our experience, we have felt led to begin the adoption process. Over the next four months, we'll be going through the home study process, meeting with a social worker as they assess fit for us to become adoptive parents. After this, we'll be hopefully, we'll be approved and we will start the adoption process. Um, There is cautiousness as we kind of start this journey with both hope and joy and excitement. We share, we share with you today as we ask that you would again ask to pray with us for timing, for God to be with us as we feel the roller coaster of our emotions and for the relationship um, with our future adoptive family. 
So this journey, as so many journeys that many in our church are walking, has been one of deep grief and loss, but also mixed with hope and joy. It's this fine line between grief and joy, and it's often not fully one or the other. There are many moments within our church community where this joy and grief meet, as we watch friends' prayers get answered and we've been asking God for. Maybe it's been praying for healing from illness and others get healed, or praying for your children to come to Christ as other children are getting baptized, or praying for a spouse as others get married, or praying for better relationships with your children or your parents as we see other families getting along, as we pray for our longings before God and we see other longings and prayers get answered, we find this line of joy and grief. We ask you, where is this tension of joy and grief present in your own life? Is there space for both the joy and the grief? Where do you see God in this space? We offer this prayer of poem of reflection to you and encourage you in whatever journey you are walking or perhaps a journey you are walking beside. As we have learned and we invite you to allow space for both to touch you, to be present with you and to experience both deeply. I'm gonna read this prayer poem about joy and sorrow. Do not be distant, O Lord, lest I find this burden of loss too heavy and shrink from the necessary experience of my grief. Do not be distant, O Lord, lest I become so mired in yesterday's hurts that I miss entirely the living gifts this day may hold. Let me neither ignore my pain, pretending all is okay when it isn't, nor coddle and magnify my pain so that I dull my capacity to experience all that remains good in this life. For joy that denies sorrow is neither hard won nor true nor eternal. It is not really joy at all. And sorrow that refuses to make space for the return of joy and hope in the end, becomes nothing more than a temple for the worship of my own woundedness. So give me strength, O oh God, to feel this grief deeply, never to hide my heart from it. And give me also hope, enough to remain open to surprising encounters with joy, as one on a woodland path might stumble suddenly into dapplings of golden light. Admidst the pain, lades these days, give me courage. O oh Lord, courage to live them fully, to love and to allow myself to be loved, to remember, to grieve, and honor what was, to live with thanksgiving in what is, and to invest in the hope of what will be. Be at work gilding these long heartbreaks, with the advent of new joys, good friendships, true fellowship, unexpected delights. Remind me again and again of your goodness, your presence, your promises. For this is who we are, a people of the promise, a people shaped in the image of the God whose very being generates all joy in the universe. Yet, who also weeps and grieves its brokenness. So we, your children, are also at liberty to lament our losses, 
even as we simultaneously rejoice in the hope of their coming restoration. Let me learn now, O Lord, to do this as naturally as the inhale and exhale of a single breath, to breathe out sorrow, to breathe in joy, to breathe out lament, to breathe in hope, to breathe out pain, to breathe in comfort, to breathe out sorrow, to breathe in joy, to breathe out joy. In one hand, I grasp the burden of my grief, while with the other, I reach for the hope of grief's redemption. And here, between the tension of the two, between what was and what will be, and in the very is of now, let my heart be surprised by, shaped by, warmed by, remade by, the same joy that forever wells within and radiates from your heart, O oh God. Amen. Let's just take a moment silently. Pray for them. Heavenly Father, we sit in these words of this prayer. I thank you for the obvious strength that you've given Kirsten and Carson, that we see it is well with their soul in spite of grief. So Lord, we are with them as a church. Lord, this is an encouraging word from your servants, Carson and Kirsten, to persevere, to keep going. Amen. I want to invite Ken and Yvonne Weeb to come on up. You can go to my right side, Yvonne. And Ken, you can sit at my left side. I just want to introduce them to you. Um, we have lots of people that are new to our church in the last year and five years and might not know who these people are. And Ken's going to be bringing us uh, the word today. And they're going to share now about their ministry with a group called Christians in Action. They were commissioned as missionaries to Sierra Leone at Broadway in July of 1977. 46 years, 46 years, they were, she said they were 12. <laughs> Who was here, if you can remember, in July of 77, you might have been here to commission them off to Sierra Leone. Would you stand if you were here, please? You know, we are going through a series on by faith, and the idea is that we're planting trees, and we might not, probably will not sit under that shade, it's for a future generation, and I, I just think of the, the years and years 
of, uh, of your work there. They've been in Sierra Leone, uh, up, they were in there up until 1995, and then there was the brutal rebel war, if you know the history. And in 1997, they relocated to London, England to be within the easy reach of the work in Sierra Leone and other African ministries that they do with Christians in action. I had an opportunity to go with them in my last sabbatical as we went to Uganda. And um, we did uh, pastor's conferences together. That was fantastic. And so they're doing those sort of ministries, uh, continuing in um, Dominican, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Uganda, and Tanzania. They have three sons and their families. They live in Manitoba, and they're flying out tomorrow to see them. Seven grandkids. So welcome with me, Ken and Yvonne Weep. Thank you, Gary. Good morning, Broadway. Thank you. Oh, that was great. <laughs> Um, it has been so, so good to be with you. We're usually hearing about Broadway life from afar, but over the past few weeks, it's been great to be here for the amazing Easter services. We parachuted in for those, and it was just an amazing welcome and a great way to be back. And then the Mexico team soup and buns. Uh -huh. <laughs> we got in on that. By the way, if any of you missed that, there's still time to give, right? Still time to give. And the testimonies and baptisms last week. Wow, what can I say? And then today, thank you, Carson and Kirsten, for sharing your story. Where are you? <laughs> thank you. Looking at Broadway, all of you. Um, you know what we see? We see life in the spirit. As you serve the Lord through joys and sorrows and all the stuff in between. And we are so blessed to be a part of this family by faith. By faith. Thank you so much for all your prayers and your support, for joining us and encouraging church leaders in places less visited. That's kind of our tagline, in places less visited. It's a privilege to be invited to meet with those who minister in remote areas and sometimes where peace is fragile. When we return to the UK, um, we'll be continuing plans for upcoming missions to the DR Congo and Uganda, so keep praying for us, please. We need, we need your prayers. Okay, I think we can just start with pictures there. Thank you. Uh, last summer, we were in beautiful Uganda. Our team was invited to facilitate a conference for pastoral couples, and the theme was Spirit-Filled Lives, Homes, and Ministries. Seemed like a big brief, and I, I must admit, we were a bit nervous, um, and it was a large conference. Many of the delegates who arrived were from isolated communities, and everyone was so excited to be together for teaching and fellowship. I think for some of them it was the first time they'd been together in, in this sort of a setting. They met early in the morning on their own without us, before breakfast, to pray for our team. <laughs> to pray for us, our team, and our translators. And um, we really needed God's help. And his presence throughout the conference was tangible. It was amazing. Mealtimes gave our team a chance to connect individually with those who'd come, although it could be interesting with language differences. Um, as our Ugandan teammates returned home, the rest of us traveled onto a Ugandan border town to find Christian refugees who had recently fled attacks in DR Congo. Among them were pastors and families by faith, they were holding on to Jesus. 
We met with a group of about 50 in a Ugandan church. There was a bishop who was also a refugee, and we knew him from past uh, missions that we'd done with him in Congo. But now he was a refugee, and the churches were in exile. And so he managed to round up from um, other Christians' verandas where they were, where they were being sheltered. Um, they were in an abandoned church. They were in refugee camps. And he, he managed to get together 50, about 50 in the church. And they're, they're suffering. It just it, it hung heavy in the air. You could feel it. We heard their stories. We prayed for them. We cried for peace. They sang hymns in Swahili, just beautiful four-part harmony without any instruments. And then the most incredible thing, they who had fled bullets and machetes were praying for us, asking God to protect the Christians in the UK and here in Canada. There are no words. We were on holy ground. Okay, can I take you briefly to Sierra Leone, where we have been involved for many years. I'd just like to introduce you to a girl called Katija. She's a Muslim background believer, and um, I met her a few years ago on a trip to Sierra Leone, and, and we heard her story, and it's, it's a very sad one, her backstory of how her mom was um, abducted during the war and taken into the bush to be a slave to the militants, and um, that's the situation that Katija was born into. It's a long story. If you want to hear more details later, we can share with you. But she um, came to Christ when she heard Jesus calling her name. And as a teenager, then she was ostracized from her Muslim family. And um, the Evangelical Fellowship of Sierra Leone, who we also partner with, they decided to pay her school fees. And her dream was to become a nurse because she wanted to help other people. And so it's just with great joy that we celebrated the news that she had graduated. And she has her degree as a nurse now, and she asked for your prayers so that she can find a placement. I think I'll turn it over to Ken. Yvonne mentioned that we work with the Evangelical Fellowship of Sierra Leone. That's one of our partners. Uh, uh, in, in Sierra Leone, and we do a variety of projects with them through a, a British charity that connects with them. Um, and one of the things that we do is to put roofs on churches. And it's been kind of special during this month that we've been in Chilliwack already. We got word just as we were coming over, just after we arrived, that some money had come in to roof one of the churches that we've been waiting for for a long time. And then the following week, money came in for a second roof. And now we're projecting for a third roof. Um, and, and at least part of the money has already come in for that. Some of these uh, churches that we do, we've tried to get out to see them. Not easy, we can't always get there on a Sunday like we did this time. But when we get there at whatever time we can, this time it was a Saturday afternoon, the next one, um, we found out that one of these churches that we'd helped roof had a primary school. 
that was taking place in it. So as soon as they have a permanent structure, it's not just a church anymore, it can also be a school. Last year, I had the joy of going back to Sierra Leone with our youngest son, Kevin. And we had one other uh, Sierra Leonean with us who lives in the UK. He's a paramedic. Uh, and then there are two from the Evangelical Fellowship who are also with us. We're doing something called the Traveling Bible School. And what that is is we go to some of the remote parts of Sierra Leone where the pastors and other church leaders have virtually no opportunity for anything that helps to enrich their ministries. And we conduct three-day seminars with them. And we go from location to location. So three days here, three days there. And Kevin was with me for one of those in, in November last year. It's a long distance. So along the way, we have to find some snacks. And the snacks that we get in Sierra Leone are, are probably different than, than what you would be uh, experiencing here. The roads are long. The first part is always paved, but then not so much. Um, it gets bad enough that often we have to stop and retie our load. In fact, this time our load started to come loose three times. And on one of those occasions, even the tracks scattered across the, the road and we had to gather everything up and put them all back into the box again. Eventually, we got to a river. And the only way across that river was by ferry. <laughs> I think for a long time, I've been wanting to go across to Vancouver Island. I'm glad the, the arrangements for that are a lot easier, even if a lot more expensive. We'll get there one day. But after crossing uh, this river, we eventually came to a town where we had to park our vehicle and get onto a boat. And this boat then carried us for about two hours uh, down this river and across to an island on the coast of Sierra Leone where we were able to have one of our conferences. Michael Abdullah was one of our speakers. And he's been a Christians in Action pastor for decades. But he also works for the Evangelical Fellowship. And it's been so great these last two or three times to be able to travel with him and to share with him in a ministry as we go into these uh, distant places, the places less visited, as Yvonne calls them. But I had another surprise this time. We had a second team member. and In fact, he was now the lead of our team, and I'd never worked with him before. And his name is Bajo. Well, actually, Pastor Joseph Bayo, but everybody calls him Bajo. And he looked somehow familiar to me. And, and I thought, I know that I may have seen him around the Evangelical Fellowship's office before, but, but somehow it's, it's different. There's more than that. And so I asked him. I said, tell me more about yourself, uh, Bajo. And he said, well, don't you remember during your last term in Sierra Leone, I was in your training program. You helped to disciple me. 
I'd just forgotten. There are so many faces to try and remember. And now he's the leader of this team working for the Evangelical Fellowship. It's nice after a long time to see some of the fruit that you never knew you had. At the end, uh, we all, as we usually try to do, we had a group photo. Those were the ones on this island that are taking the gospel to a place that's, that's pretty difficult to reach. Um, at the end, they waved us off. We had to get on the boat to, to leave the island again. And as it happened in so many places before, several of them were saying to us, can you come again next year? That's always a problem. There are so many places in Sierra Leone that we still haven't visited. How can we get back to places we've been when there are still places that we've not been? That's our dilemma during our last years of ministry. So continue to pray for us. Uh, amongst the other work that we do, like in, in Uganda and the Congo, in Tanzania, that's also reaching pastors in remote areas. But we'd like to be able to do so much more, and particularly in Sierra Leone, the place that's been our heart for the last 46 years. So, do you have a favorite Bible character? Someone whose faith and actions have inspired you? Maybe it's someone you aspire to be like or that you identify with because of some aspect of their personality or character. Over li my lifetime, I've had, a qu had quite a few, including Abraham, who left his home and family not knowing where God was leading him. Joshua, who faithfully served under Moses for decades, but when his turn to lead came, he needed to be told, be strong and courageous. David, who was called a man after God's heart, even after his sinful failures. And from the New Testament, way back when we first arrived in Africa, one of them was Timothy, whom Paul told, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Twelve, as Yvonne said. But set an example for the believers. But another favorite of mine is Barnabas. Let me introduce him to you. In Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 24, we read, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what, this, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. 
So what is it about Barnabas that led to him being described as a man full of faith? Barnabas' first appearance in Scripture is in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. And in those two verses, we learn several things. That his name was actually Joseph, that he was a Levite, that he was originally from the island of Cyprus, that the apostles called him Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement. Being an encourager was one of his leading qualities, but that doesn't mean just giving others an emotional boost. It means taking time to help others to fulfill their potential. We're told that he sold a field and gave the money to the church, which suggests that he had other fields and so was probably rather well off. And Barnabas was probably present on the day of Pentecost. He might have even been among the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out two by two. Thousands believed and were baptized on the day of Pentecost. And among those who believed were many who came to Jerusalem specifically for the Feast of Pentecost. And they would almost certainly have stayed in Jerusalem after they got saved longer than they had intended. The donation of Barnabas was among generous contributions that helped to sustain those new believers. That was really quite an act of service, and it's clear it didn't go unnoticed. Barnabas was the first person in Jerusalem to accept Saul as a genuine believer. That's in Acts chapter 9. Before his conversion on the road to Damascus, Saul had been complicit in the church's first martyrdom, the stoning of Stephen. It's understandable that the apostles thought Saul's conversion was possibly a trick. But where they feared, Barnabas had faith and courage. Barnabas was bold enough to take a chance to meet Saul, to hear him out, and then presented him to Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, and convinced them that Saul really was a brother. The reading from Acts chapter 11 that I did at the beginning informs us about the wonderful growth of a new church in Antioch. But there was a problem associated with this church growth. Those coming to the Lord were predominantly Greek Gentiles. That was maybe even more problematic for the leaders of the church in Jerusalem than was the arrival of hippies in Chuck Smith's Chuck Smith's church in Costa Mesa, California in 1968. Have you seen the Jesus Revolution? And it was really inconvenient. Antioch was hundreds of miles from Jerusalem. So instead of one or more of the apostles going up to Antioch to help this new church, the church in Jerusalem decided to send Barnabas. They must have reasoned that the task suited Barnabas. He was probably able to finance his own journey. That's a big thing in the church, isn't it? And many of the new believers were from, were from Cyprus. Barnabas was a Cypriot. 
But Barnabas appears not to have objected to being sent to preside over a church that no one else more important wanted. What about you? Would you be willing to be sent away like that? I've known a few people, both in Canada and in Africa, that have been sent away to help struggling new churches. They may not have had much experience when they started, and some were very young, but the Lord was with them. The work they were given prospered, and they grew spiritually. This is the point in this passage at which we first hear Barnabas being described as full of faith. It was his readiness to be used, even if the responsibility he had been asked to take on was one that no one else wanted. We can't know if Barnabas felt stressed or overwhelmed at Antioch. I mean, it was a fast-growing church, and he was completely new to ministry. But it wasn't long before he decided to enlist Saul's help. That was a real act of faith for Barnabas. The last Barnabas knew, Saul had gone to his hometown of Tarsus. But was Saul still there? And if he was, would he be willing to come back with him? It was no short walk for Barnabas. Last week, Yvonne and I visited Kamloops to see some relatives there. Barnabas' trip up to Tarsus would have been like walking from Chilliwack, walking almost all the way to Kamloops, with the distinct possibility that he might be walking home again, alone. I think he knew that Saul's brand of evangelistic fervor could really benefit the work of the Lord in Antioch. But I think he also knew that Saul would benefit from working with other established believers and not entirely on his own. Even those who are most gifted need guidance develop, to develop their skills and discernment. Barnabas and Saul taught together in Antioch for a year. And I'll skip over details about the mercy, mercy of mission, sorry, the mission of mercy that Barnabas and Saul made to Jerusalem. But in Acts chapter 12, we see that when they returned to Antioch, they took with them a man named John Mark. It seems Barnabas was looking for a new disciple to train. Now from the Gospel of Mark in chapter 14, we know that Mark was a young man and that he followed Jesus and his disciples out onto the Mount of Olives on the night of the Last Supper. He was the young man that ran away naked when the temple authorities tried to seize him. Mary, in whose upper room the Last Supper had been held, was his mother, and Barnabas was a cousin, or possibly an uncle. Mark was intrigued by Jesus, to whom his mother and cousin were devoted. I think the story that night played out like this. Mark would have been enlisted by his mother to help take food from the, for the feast from the outdoor kitchen up to Jesus and his disciples. You know, the cooking was done outside then, and this was an upper room. So 
somebody needed to carry the food up. That was probably Mark, or quite possibly Mark, let's say. But, you know, he's a young man. He's still living at home with his mother. He's going to be put to work on a day like that. There would have been a lot of food needing multiple trips up and down the stairs. And I imagine Mark hanging around to listen to Jesus whenever he could until his mother called again, Mark, get down here. You know, bring something else up. When it was all over, Mark would have been, asked, would have been tasked with helping with the cleanup. Isn't that right? Okay. Instead, he snuck out of the house and followed Jesus at a distance. And that's why he was there in the garden, watching and able to give account of this young man who ran away. It was he himself. Mary knew that her son needed guidance. And so she entrusted him to Barnabas, something that we see very often in Africa. One family member entrusting somebody who needed help and assistance and training, maybe schooling, send them off to another relative for that to be provided. And so Mary gave her son Barnabas, uh, gave her son Mark to Barnabas to take along as his apprentice. And after their return to Antioch, we're told that during a time of fasting, worship, and prayer, the Holy Spirit spoke, and he called out Barnabas and Saul for a special ministry. I was only 18 years old when I knew that God was calling me. The calling was a certainty in my heart, but it was another two and a half years before Yvonne and I set out on our life's adventure. First, I had to complete my training. You might say I had to grow up. Then Yvonne and I were married. We had to work on staff in California for a while, and finally we had to raise our support. But what has intrigued me recently is that at no time did I have guidance as to where we would go. Maybe some of you have sensed God's call on your life, or will at some point. It might have come through the words of a sermon, a passage of scripture you read, maybe during a time of worship and prayer, or even some seemingly random comment that set you thinking. But you still have a lot of unanswered questions. Don't worry about that. Just take one step at a time in faith, like Barnabas did. Barnabas was the leader of what became the very first deliberately planned missionary journey in history. And he went in the direction that his own interests lay, to Cyprus. That's not surprising. He was himself a Cypriot. And many of the Antioch church family were also from Cyprus. For me, I've always been fascinated by Africa. So my heart gradually settled on Sierra Leone as our first destination. I wasn't called to Sierra Leone. I was just called. Very likely, if you receive a call from God for service and accept it, you will also find a great latitude in God's grace to fulfill it in a direction that fits your interests, aptitudes, or abilities. 
or the ones that he'll develop in you over time. On the island of Cyprus, Paul's abilities as a speaker came to the fore, and gradually he came to be the leader of the team. How do you think Barnabas felt? Whatever his feelings, he continued to be faithful to his calling. It might have been harder for Mark, John Mark, than for Barnabas, because as soon as the team arrived at Pamphylia in Asia Minor, he abandoned them and went back to Jerusalem. But really, it's not at all obvious why Mark left. Sometime after the end of their first missionary journey, Paul approached Barnabas and said, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas was minded to join Paul, but he wanted to give Mark another chance. Paul refused, but Barnabas would not back down, so they parted ways. Paul ended up taking another partner, Silas, and he did head back to Asia Minor. But Barnabas took Mark, and they went back again to Cyprus. Barnabas, the encourager, always saw the potential in others, first in Saul, then in Mark. Some people feel threatened by the potential of others to surpass them. But it seems Barnabas never felt threatened by the consequences of encouraging, boosting, and empowering someone who might become more important, effective, or powerful than him. Or at least, he never allowed it to stop him from advancing that person's ministry. Do you see the potential of others within your sphere of influence? Barnabas was right in encouraging Paul into leadership. Paul became the greatest evangelist to ever walk the earth. Barnabas was right in encouraging John Mark and giving him a second chance. Paul later sends for Mark, declaring that he is useful to him. The one who had no use for Mark now wanted him on his team because Mark had become useful through Barnabas's efforts. And we know that Mark went on to write one of the four Gospels. Yet Barnabas is hardly ever heard of again, except in a couple of passing references in Paul's letters. But his legacy of faith, obedience, and service live on in the fruitful lives of those he mentored. Barnabas is one of my favorite heroes of the faith. Who is yours? Whose story of active faith challenges and inspires you to walk with Jesus? Those that have inspired me for decades are not just found in the pages of Scripture. Some of them are still right here at Broadway. And like Joseph, called Barnabas, son of encouragement, each one of us can be a source of encouragement to someone else needing reinforcing, reassuring, boosting, inspiring, and challenging in their own faith in Jesus Christ. In ending, I want to say, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word.
Amen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Yvonne. Encouraging to us. We take communion once a month in our church, but we need to know the message of communion every morning. Every morning, we need to know that our sins are forgiven. If you remember at Easter service, I challenged Oli to a tennis match, and he got to choose between a brand new big tennis racket with a massive sweet spot or an old Bjornborg wooden racket. And he chose the big racket, and we asked him why, and he said, well, there is more forgiveness. <laughs> then we talked about how our highways and our streets are designed with a sense of forgiveness so people don't have to be perfect. And so communion is about forgiveness. And it's important to know we call it communion because it means we're doing this together and we are all equal. There is no distinction of humans. We celebrate that fact. Isaiah 53.5 says this, and I believe it's uh, particular to communion. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Transgressions means where we've gone contrary to God's law. It says, Jesus was crushed for our iniquities, our evil offenses, our ungodliness, our wrongdoing, our injustices, our our wickedness. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Different words for sin in this passage. And if you read the whole chapter, it's about how sin also affects us. Sickness, sorrow, transgressions, wrongdoing are bad. We're stained. But Jesus on the cross washes away our stains. We're serpentine in our life, meaning crooked and twisted instead of straight and upright, and Jesus straightens that out. Our sins separate us from God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This started in Eden, and it's described in hundreds of ways in our Old and New Testaments, and they're all proved in our lives, our families, and in our court system. We have laws because people sin, and they like to sin. We have policies and regulations because people need governance to do the right thing. So Jesus says, come to me, all who are weak and burdened and heavy laden. Believe in me, and you will live even though you die. So take that cup. Look around the people in the pews in front of you, behind you, above you, below you, in front of you. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same train. We all have the same stain of sin, but Jesus has taken it away. We are all in need of forgiveness. We are all in need of mercy and grace. We are all in need of a Savior. We are all in need of Jesus, so we do this together. Our sins have been nailed to the cross and done with. No more spiritual debt. It's like the financially bankrupt person being totally cleared, all loans totally forgiven. The spiritually dead and the spiritually bankrupt person is totally cleared. We have forgiveness of our debts, our sins, and that's why we take communion this morning. Not because you had a good week, or you sinned less this week. The Bible says that we make God out to be a liar if we say we're without sin. But we also are not to continue in sin. 
to know that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins as we confess them to him. For this is what the Lord himself said, and Paul here is passing it on to us as he received it. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's take the representation of his body, the little wafer at the top. Let's take, let's take. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Let's drink together. And it says every time that you and I have done this, eat this bread and drink this cup, we are announcing, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are proclaiming the forgiveness of sins until he comes again. Amen.